Pride is self-serving. It has a long history of inflicting pain on others and, in turn, bringing about the destruction of many relationships. Unfortunately, pride is one of the most subtle and negative dispositions the human heart produces. Welcome to Every Last Word, a radio and internet program with Dr. Philip Ryken, teaching the whole Bible to change your whole life. We're continuing an expositional study in the book of Jeremiah. This week's theme is God's judgment on the terrible sin of pride. All of us struggle with this besetting sin to some degree and are therefore guilty of it, but God does have grace and mercy even for those who are noisy boasters. Well, in today's message, Phil, God's judgment is directed specifically at Moab. You mentioned that this prophecy was made when Moab still had a strong economy and that they were at the height of their power. Seems like quite a bold move by Jeremiah, doesn't it? Well, I think it is a bold move. There was no reason, humanly speaking, to think that Moab would come under the judgment of God, that their economy would fail, that they would come under judgment. But Jeremiah was speaking on behalf of God. He was God's mouthpiece, and the prophecies that he uttered came with all of the authority and accuracy of Almighty God. And this is confirmed from history and from archaeology, the destruction of the Moabites. And it's a reminder to us that if these words of Jeremiah came true, we should take at face value all of the words that Jesus has spoken about the judgment to come and also about eternal life through faith in him. You'll show us today that there was a list of sins that Jeremiah described the Moabites by defiance, idolatry, self-righteousness, greed, and then that last one, pride. Why is pride seemingly the worst of all? Well, many theologians have said that, Mark, that pride is the worst of all of the sins. I think as you look at the list of the sins of the Moabites, I mean, one of the things that strikes me is how common these sins are in our own time. Self-righteousness, greed, idolatry, all of the other things that we love to worship. But at the root of all of that is pride setting ourselves up as God over against the one living and true God. And if we're uh, proud of ourselves and of our own ambitions, how can there be any room in our lives for the glory of God? That's why pride is such a great sin and why it's important for us to heed Jeremiah's warnings about it in today's message. Okay, thanks, Phil. Let's turn in our Bibles now to Jeremiah chapter 48 and listen to God's word for us today. Well, I've learned a thing or two about Moabites this week, as you might be able to guess. And among other things, I've learned that when Jeremiah was just a lad growing up in Anathoth, he could look out on the eastern horizon and see the plateau of Moab on the other side of the Dead Sea. It formed the eastern border of his existence. He could see those Mountains where the Moabites lived, those long-lost cousins of the Jews who traced their heritage all the way back to Lot. Jeremiah chapter 48 contains what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says concerning Moab. And by now we know very much what to expect. As one scholar puts it, the nation will be specifically named, attentively described, and seriously addressed, and the news will not be good. 
Jeremiah's prophecy about Moab, like his prophecy about Egypt and his prophecy about Philistia, will be a prophecy of judgment. And he goes town by town through all of the towns and villages and municipalities of Moab to explain that they will be destroyed. Woe to Nebo, for it will be ruined. Kiriatayim will be disgraced. The sound of their cry rises from Heshbon to Eliela and Jahaz, from Zoar as far as Horonayim and Eglath Shalashia, for even the waters of Nimrim are dried up. As Jeremiah lifts his eyes up to the skyline, he announces God's judgment to all the towns of Moab far and near. He mentions some 25 different locations in all. These cities and villages were well-known to Jeremiah and well-known to God. And to summarize, the destroyer will come against every town, and not a town will escape. Put salt on Moab, for she will be laid waste with no one to live in her towns. And of course, sowing salt was an ancient symbol of curse. It was a sign that a conquering army had come in and left a town or a city completely desolate. And in this way, the Moabites learned the same lesson that the Egyptians had learned and that the Philistines had learned, and that is that God is the judge and ruler of all nations. His kingship knows no political boundaries. Therefore, he calls himself in these verses at verse 15, the king His name is the Lord Almighty. He's the king of Moab as well as the king of Israel. He is the king of all kings. One of the remarkable things about this prophecy is that Jeremiah made it when Moab still had a strong economy. When Moab was still at the height of her powers. Nevertheless, Jeremiah foresaw the sudden and total defeat of the Moabites. The fall of Moab is at hand. Her calamity will come quickly. Verse 16, an eagle will swoop down, spreading its wings over Moab. Verse 40, and of course that eagle swooped as promised. Josephus, the ancient Jewish historian, tells how Nebuchadrezzar came from Babylon in the year 582 to destroy the Moabites. And to this day, modern archaeology can confirm the biblical prophecy. This is what one scholar reports. It was in its state of highest prosperity that the prophets foretold that the cities of Moab should become desolate. And accordingly, we find that although the sites, ruins, and names of many ancient cities of Moab can be traced, not one of them exists at the present day as tenanted by man. Cyril Graham, who explored this region, found cities with buildings in a good state of preservation, yet everywhere uninhabited. The long-predicted doom of Moab is now fulfilled, and the 48th chapter of Jeremiah is verified on the spot by the traveler. Thus, the tragedy of the Moabites shows again that God's word is truth. Jeremiah was more than just a good guesser. It was more than a shrewd observer of international politics. He was the mouthpiece of God, and everything that he prophesied came true, and it confirmed the truth of God's Word. 
And it is very sobering to realize that all of these terrible judgments came to pass. The punishment of the Moabites is thus a warning to anyone who doubts the reality of the wrath of God. The Bible says that man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. And of course, the truth of that statement is not something that you can confirm personally until after you die. And yet, since the Bible says it, you ought certainly to believe it. If the rest of the prophecies of divine judgment have been fulfilled, why would this threat of eternal judgment be any different? God hates sin and must punish it. And that is why sinners must take their sins to the cross of Christ, where Christ was crucified for sins. For the wages of sin must be paid in full, either in your own person, as the Moabites discovered, or by taking your sins to Christ and letting Him have done with them on the cross. That's what becoming a Christian means. It means giving your sins over to Christ so that Christ can have received the judgment for them on the cross. And in this way, everyone who trusts in Christ for salvation avoids the necessity of paying for his or her own sins at the final judgment. For it was, of course, sin which carried the Moabites into judgment. They brought divine judgment on themselves, and Jeremiah mentions at least five sins of the Moabites. See if any of them sound familiar. First, rebellion. Moab will be destroyed as a nation, this is verse 42, because she has defied the Lord. The Moabites had a long history of shaking their fists at God, and ultimately they were destroyed because of their defiance of God. They were originally conceived, you may remember, through incest. For one of the daughters of Lot had sexual relations with her father and gave birth to Moab, which means simply from father. Never afterwards, the Moabites were sworn enemies of God's people. Balak, king of Moab tried to persuade Balaam to pronounce a curse against Israel. In the days of the judges, the Moabites were oppressing Israel until Ehud, the left-handed judge, delivered them. Again, in the days of the kings, David subdued the Moabites and made them pay tribute. And now in Jeremiah's day, the Moabites are defying God, and this time, Apparently, by making fun of God's people, verse 27, was not Israel the object of your ridicule? God allowed Moab to laugh at his people for a time, but he will not be mocked forever. And now the doom of the Moabites is upon them. Make her drunk, for she has defied the Lord. Let her be an object of ridicule. This drunken stupor of Moab is a warning to anyone who mocks God. For God does allow himself to be ridiculed by his creatures for a time. He allows, for example, comedians to make fun of Christianity on late night television. Or he allows students to give some kind of scorn on the Christians in their dormitory. Or he allows atheists to take the fish, which is the symbol of Christianity, and to put legs on it 
to make it into a symbol for Charles Darwin. God even suffered his own son to be mocked as he was led to his cross. But God will not be mocked forever. And there is nothing humorous about this picture of Moab wallowing, as it were, in her own vomit. Nor will there be anything funny about meeting God at his throne for judgment. Second sin of the Moabites was idolatry, the worship of false gods. In Moab, I will put an end to those who make offerings on the high places to their gods. This is verse 35. The Moabites had a long history of idolatry. They were, as it says in verse 46, the people of Chemosh. Worshiping Chemosh was a bloody business. In the days of King Misha, when the Moabites were attacked and surrounded by the people of God, Misha sacrificed his own son on the walls of his city as a sacrifice to Chemosh. And Chemosh, the worship of Chemosh, as bloody as it was, had often been a temptation for the people of Israel. Solomon, for example, made one of the Moabites his wife, and then afterwards set up an altar to Chemosh. In fact, the Bible says, and this is 1 Kings 11, verse 33, that the reason that Israel was finally divided into two kingdoms was because God's people worshipped Chemosh, the god of the Moabites. And now God is going to punish the Moabites to show his power over Chemosh. He will send Chemosh into exile, it says in verse 7, together with his priests and officials. Chemosh will become a sort of trophy of war for God. And this shows what happens to those who trust in Chemosh or in any other god besides the true and living God. Such gods cannot save themselves or others. The third sin was self-righteousness. This is the basic instinct of fallen humanity. By nature, sinners believe in their own goodness. They have a sort of unshakable confidence in their own goodness, and the Moabites were no exception. And this was their downfall. Verse 7, since you trust in your deeds, you too will be taken captive. The Moabites trusted in their own exploits, and yet no sinner has ever been saved from judgment by his or her own works. This is what sent Martin Luther into such great despair. For he had every reason to trust in his own deeds. This is what he writes, I was a good monk and kept my order so strictly that I could claim that if ever a monk were able to reach heaven by monkish discipline, I should have found my way there. All my fellows in the house who knew me would bear me out in this. For if it had continued much longer, I would, what with vigils, prayers, readings, and other such works, have done myself to death. You see, Luther knew that he had to be perfectly righteous to stand in the presence of God, and yet he also knew that he was completely unrighteous. On occasion, he confessed his sins for as long as six hours at a time, trying to get right with God, and yet there was no rest for his soul. And Luther remained in black despair until he discovered from the Scriptures that in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed. Romans chapter 1, verse 17, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. 
You see, the sinner does not have any righteousness to offer God. God gives righteousness to the sinner through faith in Jesus Christ. The only kind of righteousness a sinner could ever offer to God would be self-righteousness, and that is no righteousness at all. But now, a righteousness from God has been made known. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ, Romans chapter 3. The judgment against Moab shows the futility of trusting in one's own deeds, and therefore it reminds us of the necessity of receiving the righteousness of Jesus Christ and of receiving it by faith. The fourth sin of the Moabites was greed. You trust in your deeds and riches. And when Jeremiah gave this prophecy, the Moabites were still riding an economic boon. They did not count their wealth in stocks and bonds. They counted it in wine and in sheep. Moab was the sort of Napa Valley of the Middle East. To give an idea of how rich they were, in the days of King Misha, they supplied Israel with 100,000 lambs and 100,000 fleeces in annual tribute. And with so much wool and with so much wine... They thought that they had no need for God. Of course, by now, the sins of Moab ought to sound very familiar, for they are the sins of our own culture, rebellion, idolatry, self-righteousness, greed. And yet there was one more sin of which the Moabites were guilty, and it's the biggest sin of all, and the sin which Christians are most likely to commit We find it in verse 29, we have heard of Moab's pride. The New English Bible offers the most poetic translation. We have heard of Moab's pride, and proud indeed he is. Proud, presumptuous, overbearing, insolent. I know his arrogance, says the Lord. His boasting is false, and false are his deeds." This must have been a popular saying in those days because we find it also in the book of Isaiah, chapter 16, at verse 6. Jeremiah also goes on to refer to the Moabites as noisy boasters. Well, the Moabites were full of noisy boasts, but in the end, God humbled them. He said, come down from your glory and sit on the parched ground. I suppose the best word to describe the Moabites is complacency, which is defined in the Oxford English Dictionary as smug self-satisfaction. This is how Jeremiah describes Moab's complacency. This is verse 11. Moab has been at rest from youth like wine left on its dregs, not poured from one jar to another. She tastes as she did, and her aroma is unchanged. Jeremiah imagines a jar of wine that has been left long past the point of simply being mellow. Of course, wine of an old vintage is always best, but not when it has grown sour by standing still on that accumulated sediment in the bottom of the jar. One expert on wine, explains that newly fermented wine should be racked within one or two weeks after the completion of fermentation because bad odors may form as a result of the autolization of the yeast 
in the lees of the wine. And in the same way, the Moabites were sitting back, living the easy life, and what somebody needed to do to them was to shake them up. Otherwise, as Jeremiah goes on to say, I will send men who pour from jars and they will pour her out. They will empty her jars and smash her jugs. And we might ask, if only, or we might lament, if only the vintner had poured the Moabites from one bottle into another before it was too late. We might well ask how many Christians need to be decanted in this same way. What institution is more complacent, more full of smug self-satisfaction than the traditional church? Complacent Christians are believers who have not entertained one new thought about God or made one new step of faith in months if not years. They are at the same point in the Christian life that they were at last year, and very likely the year before that. Their behavior is no more godly. Their prayers are no more intimate. Their evangelism is no more persuasive. About such a Christian, Jeremiah would say, they taste the way they used to taste. They still smell the way they used to smell. And someone... Or something needs to come along and stir them up before the wine of the Spirit grows sour, just resting on the dregs of a stagnant spirituality. There is an old missionary biography called Hudson Taylor in the early years. and One of the book's chapters takes for its title part of this verse. It's called, Emptied from Vessel to Vessel. And it describes how unsettled Taylor was in the early months of his second year in ministry in China. Nevertheless, as Taylor was moved from place to place, he was very fruitful in his Christian life because he was too unsettled to grow complacent. Like Hudson Taylor and like the Moabites, many Christians need to be stirred up. Unless something is happening in your spiritual life, you will soon become Sour, you will taste like a sour Christian. Well, once divine judgment came to the wine country of Moab, it was too late for Moab to be stirred up. Joy and gladness are gone from the orchards and fields of Moab. I have stopped the flow of wine from the presses. No one treads them with shouts of joy. And thus, like all the judgment passages in Jeremiah, this chapter is a warning about the wages of sin. But it is also something else. It is also an invitation to weep for the lost. For Jeremiah's oracle against Moab is not angry, although there are times when it almost seems that way, but it is mournful. It's not a diatribe, it is a lament. Jeremiah describes early in the chapter the way that the Moabites themselves will mourn over their destruction. Listen to the cries from Horonaim. Her little ones will cry out. That sound of the children sobbing will reach from the mountains down to the plains. And so Jeremiah invites Moab's neighbors to join the lament. Mourn for her. Verse 17, all who live around her say how broken is the mighty scepter, how broken 
the glorious staff. And as he imagines this scene, the prophet himself is moved by Moab's plight. We have called him before the weeping prophet, and we have seen how he weeps over his own sins and over the sins of his people, and now he weeps for the sins of his long-lost cousins. Verse 31, Therefore I wail over Moab, for all Moab I cry out. Jeremiah has a deep sympathy, even an empathy for their suffering. And that would be remarkable enough. It would be remarkable enough for a Jew to weep for a Moabite. But what is more remarkable is that in these verses, God himself appears to join in the lament. Verse 36, So my heart laments for Moab like a flute. It laments like a flute for the men of Kir Hareseth. Every head is shaved and every beard cut off on all the roofs in Moab and in the public squares. There is nothing but mourning, for I have broken Moab like a jar that no one wants. And that same God who has broken Moab will also play the piper at Moab's funeral. What does this mean? What can it mean for Almighty God to shed tears over the destruction of his enemies? The answer to such a question is a mystery, surely known only to God himself. But it does remind us of the tears that our Savior shed for the lost in his own city. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. And from this example of our Lord Jesus, we learn that Christians who have the heart of Christ share his pity for the lost. They are deeply affected by the realities of divine judgment. They are firmly convinced of the necessity of turning to Jesus Christ for salvation. And they are mournfully aware of the desperate spiritual condition of many of those known to them. And thus their evangelism is an act of the heart as well as an act of the will. One Monday morning, not long ago, I came into this sanctuary to pray. And I hesitate to share this lest it give you the wrong impression about my spirituality. I am a very great sinner, a bigger sinner than most, as my wife will be able to testify. And yet I share this because on the previous day I had seen a man come into the church building with his young son and deliver that boy to some Sunday school class or another and then to leave by the side door of the church. And he seemed very ill at ease and it seemed to me that very likely he was a good man who wanted to raise his son in the right way, but very likely that this was not a family who knew Christ in a personal way. I was so moved by the lostness of their condition that I agonized in prayer for them that morning. I prayed that his Sunday school teachers would teach him the Word of God and that someone would take an interest in him and explain the way of salvation to him. 
I prayed also that the Holy Spirit, and I prayed this with many tears, would send the gift of faith into this child's heart and so that he would be saved and also his family. Now, the Bible does not teach that the efficacy of our prayers depends in any way on our emotional condition. In fact, the Lord is greatly glorified when he answers many half-hearted and lackluster prayers, including, I have found, many of my own. So tears may not be a good way to guarantee an answer to prayer. And yet they do say something about the heart of the one who prays. They say something about someone who has a heart for the lost, the kind of heart that God himself has. And it would be well for us to pray that the Lord might give us greater grief for the spiritual condition of the lost. Consider the ministry of David Brainerd, that great missionary to the Native American Indians. God greatly blessed his preaching with many conversions. And not surprisingly, when we read in his diary the way that he prayed on April 19th, 1742, when he was just 23 years old, he writes, God enabled me so to agonize in prayer that I was quite wet with sweat, though I was in the shade and the wind was cool. My soul was drawn out very much for the world. I gasped for the multitude of souls. I had more enlargement for sinners even than for the children of God. I felt as if I could spend my life in cries for them both. And might I suggest to you, my brothers and sisters, that we will not see men and women and children coming to faith in Christ by the tens and by the twenties until we have learned so to agonize in prayer for the multitude of souls. There is one last thing for our encouragement in prayer from this chapter. It comes in the very last verse. God must have heard Jeremiah's lament for Moab because he says, I will restore the fortunes of Moab in days to come. Here ends the judgment on Moab. And it's hard to know how God has fulfilled or will fulfill this passage. For there is in Scripture not one specific word about the salvation of a Moabite. Although those of you who are very sharp will remember that there is a word of salvation for a Moabitess, Ruth, who bound herself in faith to the people of God and made a great profession of faith in the days when she returned to Israel with her mother-in-law, Naomi. And Ruth was saved by her faith, perhaps the first fruits of the Moabites. And yet today we find that the Moabite people have been lost Entirely, those few who survived the onslaught of Babylon were eventually lost in the sands of the Middle East. If their blood survives today, it survives in the Arabs of the kingdom of Jordan or the other kingdoms of the Middle East. Therefore, I wonder if it might not be the case that we might claim this promise of the restoration of the fortunes of Moab on behalf of the Muslims who live throughout the Middle East in great spiritual darkness. And if we can take this promise in that way, it is a reminder that however overlooked Muslims have been in the work of missions throughout the world, they have not been overlooked by God. 
And he retains yet some pity for their lost condition, and he has some good plan for them to come to faith in his Son, Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we confess that there is too much Moabite in us, too much pride and smugness. So we desire to have our hearts broken, to be confronted with our sin, and also to be greatly impressed with the need of salvation for the lost. We pray that you would teach us how to be men and women and children who grieve for the lost. And we pause to pray even now for the billions of Muslims throughout this world who still live in spiritual darkness and to pray that by your Spirit you might yet do some great work of salvation among the Muslim people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to Every Last Word, a ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, featuring the Bible teaching of Dr. Philip Graham Riken. We appreciate your ongoing support of this broadcast ministry. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades, even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. The Alliance also produces the radio broadcasts The Bible Study Hour, featuring the teaching of the late Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, and Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, featuring the Bible teaching of the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. For a full list of radio stations carrying our programs, please visit our website at www.alliancenet.org. Every Last Word continues through your generous gifts and financial support. If you would like to see this program continue to benefit others as it has benefited you, please prayerfully consider becoming a friend of the Alliance. For more information or to make a contribution, please contact us by calling toll-free 1-800-488-1888. You can also send us a gift by writing to Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Or you can visit us online at www.alliancenet.org. Be sure to ask for a free resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. Thank you again for your continued support and for listening to Every Last Word.